This is an AMI podcast. Keep the conversation going off the air. Your voice matters. Email feedback at AMI.ca or connect with us on Twitter at AMI-audio and let us know what you think about our programming. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The ideal or normative body is often construed as white, male, able-bodied, and thin. Racialized people, the queer community, people with disabilities, and even fat bodies are marked as different and subject to heightened scrutiny. Often, public discourse looks at disability as needing to be cured. Similarly, fat bodies are perceived as inherently unhealthy. It is believed that through a range of practices, such as vigorous exercise or dieting, the fat body can and should be forced to meet the norm of thinness. However, only by challenging what is believed to be normal is it possible to move towards fully embracing different bodies and lived experiences. Today, we discuss fat phobia and disability. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. I hope that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're staying safe and making the transitions necessary of all of us during this time of COVID-19. To keep up with the latest AMI-audio segments related to the pandemic, you can visit ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. There you can find the latest coverage from all of our daily live shows, now with Dave Brown, Kelly and company, and of course, whatever we cover for you here on The Pulse. It's a topic that I've long wanted to get into, the relationship between the treatment of bodies that are deemed to be different because of a disability, maybe because the body is perceived as uh, being fat or quote-unquote over weight. There are so many complicated ideas to parse out. So without further ado, let me bring in my guest today. My guest today is Megan Hogg, a contributor to Knots, an undergraduate disability studies journal published by the University of Toronto. You might remember we had another contributor from Knots on the program a while back, Sam Burnett. Megan wrote a paper for the journal called Mad and Fat Towards a Queer Politics of Embodied Difference. Megan Hogg, welcome to The Pulse. It's so great to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Joyda. It's great to be here. One of the terms that pops up in your paper a lot is one that we aren't familiar with. The term is healthism. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think this is really important to understand in our current uh, situation and and with the COVID-19 pandemic um, being ongoing. We're sort of through the the crisis moment, although not for everyone, certainly. And we're starting to kind of normalize these ideas about personal responsibility and hand-washing and wearing of masks. And also with that, um, things like shaming on social media of individual choices and behaviors in light of the pandemic. Um, and so when I was writing this paper, I think in 2017, it's been a while now, uh, healthism, what I'm referring to there is the belief system that health is a personal responsibility. It's the responsibility of the individual. And it's an idea or an ideology that establishes health as being something we should pursue above all else. 
So really Mm -hmm. our primary mandate as good citizens is to be healthy. And so that's what I mean by healthism in the context of this paper. How do you relate healthism to ideas about bodies that are different, disabled bodies or fat bodies? How does healthism come into play when we correlate those concepts? Absolutely. Um, Well, I I used to know someone who used to say, um, your health is your wealth. And I think Mm -hmm. in a capitalist world, that is absolutely true. And these bodies that we perceive as different are also often bodies that aren't uh, interacting with our uh, with with work and with the economy um, and with kind of expectations of workers as productive in the same way as um, as capitalism would like essentially um, and so bodies that are uh, different that either um, experience ill health or disability um, black and indigenous bodies. Um, these are all bodies that are read as not the norm, which, as you uh, so eloquently put in, in the opening essay, um, have to do with being white, have to do with being able-bodied, um, and have to do with being men, essentially. Mm-hmm. So the white, able-bodied man. Um, and when bodies stray from that norm, then we pass judgment on their value. Uh, and we pass judgment on their ability to kind of live up to our expectations of good good citizens. We see them as not worthy, um, and we see them as burdens sometimes on on the health system. And so, I think it's really important to notice when bodies are straying from the norm, the ways in which they become sort of hyper visible. Uh, and we as citizens are really aware of them. Maybe a body doesn't move in the way that we um, perceive that it should, or we notice things like race, or we notice uh, gender nonconforming bodies. And we start to question their place in the world around us because we've been conditioned to believe that the white, able-bodied man is really what we should all live up to. And yet some of us or many of us have been to that doctor's office and sat through that visit where we've been told, look, you really need to lose some weight. And I'm not Mm -hmm. saying this for aesthetic reasons. I'm saying for your health, if you don't drop 40 pounds, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. How do you reconcile that kind of message with what what you're talking about, which is the sort of devaluing of bodies that stray from the norm? Well, I think, you know, to go back to healthism um, and this kind of notion that health is always the personal responsibility and that it's, you know, something that with the, the right attitude, um, with the right products, um, with the right kind of choices, we can we can always achieve perfect health. Um, it really, that, that doctrine ignores the structural and systemic barriers that produce ill health. Uh, mm-hmm. including different forms of oppression, including things like pollution and environmental degradation that are linked to capitalism, uh, social determinants of health that lead to poor health outcomes, and that also um, lead to it being more difficult to make some of those decisions that ultimately might support us being you know, the healthiest we can be, not necessarily the healthy person as uh, we are um, 
demanded to be under capitalism mm-hmm. and under healthism. And so, you know, for example, the way we structure our lives under capitalism, we don't have, uh, there's huge income disparity. There are issues with food security and even being able to make choices about the foods that we consume, never mind food that we perceive to be healthy food, but also culturally appropriate food. Um, you know, there's huge issues and that we're seeing right now around social isolation and loneliness, which have profound impacts on our physical and mental health. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all of these things are really connected. And so those conversations, I mean, I'm I'm not going to speak to individual health decisions made with a doctor, but I think the broader kind of societal understanding we have of what it takes to be, quote unquote, healthy is what needs to shift here. Right. I'm speaking to Megan Hogg, a contributor to the undergraduate Knott's Disability Studies Journal, and we're talking about her paper, Mad and Fat, towards a queer politics of embodied difference. Let's turn to the title of your paper. What do you mean by a queer politics of embodied difference? For those of us who are unfamiliar, what is queer politics? Yeah, um, I love this question. And this is something I think about a lot. And I don't think there is kind of one definition of queer politics. But um, when I was writing this paper, and as a queer woman, myself as a queer and semi-identified woman, and as a cisgendered woman, so meaning that my gender presentation matches um, the gender that I was assigned at birth, um, I think of a queer politics as being uh, the ability to kind of identify the shadows in sort of the the world that we know at large, the world that we're told as it is, um, is white and straight and able-bodied. And that sort of living in the shadows opens up new possibilities of thinking about our place in the world, of thinking about our bodies, of thinking about our relationships. Um, and when I was writing this paper, I was particularly influenced by the notion of queer failure, which is uh, comes from Jack Halberstam. And... Mm-hmm. When uh, So this idea of queer failure, it's essentially a form of resistance, even though we're using the word failure. And it's the idea that sometimes to fail the test we've been given by a colonial, capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal world is actually to demonstrate resistance to being mm-hmm. governed by these systems. Um, and these are systems that rely on domination um, rather than, you know, relationality and reciprocity. And so queer moves us beyond kind of the the idea of being abnormal or the politics of shame that comes with that uh, to view like the messiness of the human body and our failure to kind of adhere to these structures as actually really generative and even desirable. I'm going to come back to the notion of resistance and even creating spaces that are fat accepting and and accepting of different types of bodies, maybe towards the end of the conversation. But what I want to do right now is really talk to you uh, maybe in a less abstract way and maybe in a more, to offer up some concrete examples. So many of us might have tuned into shows, uh, reality TV shows like The Biggest Loser, for example. What are shows like that doing to our cultural concepts and conceptions of the ideal body? Oh, great question. And I and I want to say as well that while I'm critiquing these 
um, ideas and like the participation in these kind of structures that I also get sucked into reality TV. (laughs) Um, I also find it fascinating. Um, And I think, you know, what we need to do when we're watching these forms of, of, um, I'll say, entertainment, although I think there's other words we could use. Um, that it's really about questioning what it is we're watching and, as you've just said, um, what it is we're being taught by watching this. Um, And I think reality TV is kind of like the ultimate of, like, early warning or maybe late warning systems um, where we are able to participate in this kind of, like, gawking and gaping, which I refer to in the paper, and this judgment of others, but from the comfort of our living room and without social repercussions. So we're almost being trained to apply uh, these ideas about bodies and what they should and shouldn't be and what they should and should not do um, from the comfort of our home. And it's like it's kind of like a practice for when we're out in the world and we're noticing bodies that we read as different. Um, and I think they've really the reality TV has really sensationalized fat bodies and disabled bodies. And there's a lot of kind of understandings that we have about these bodies through television and through media that are really problematic. Like, you know, the idea of like overcoming disability as the the primary goal and objective um, and, you know, overcoming fatness, for example, um, whereas we aren't seeing the ways in which those bodies and those people are productive members of their communities are, you know, not are not the like site of tragedy that I think reality TV and spectacle that I think reality TV kind of primes us to see them as. My name is Juwita Gupta and with me is Megan Hogg, who is the author of a paper that was published in Knots, the Undergraduate Disability Studies Journal. Megan's paper is called Mad and Fat Towards a Queer under a queer politics of disab- of of embodied difference uh Megan one of the things that you talk about quite a lot in your paper is the work of Roxanne Gay who's uh well known in some circles and not so well known in other circles uh and her memoir Hunger who who is Roxanne Gay and why was her work Hunger so central to your work Mm-hmm. Um, so Roxane Gay is an American writer, uh, a professor, I believe, of English. I'm sorry, Roxanne, if I got that wrong. Um, and has a very spicy, uh, prolific Twitter presence. Um, <laughs> she wrote a book called Bad Feminist um, and some other books, which I have to admit, I, I have not read. Um, I, I haven't read a lot of her work. I've read some select essays. And of course, I read Hunger. Um, and the reason that hunger became so central to uh, my work and, and the essay that, that we're sort of referencing is uh, that I, both because of the ways that I recognized myself in her story, although it's a story that's very different from mine, and also because of the ways her story completely diverges from my own. Um, I am a white settler. I experienced in privilege, um, and uh, Roxane Gay is uh, a a black woman in America. She um, has also experienced trauma and writes about that. So that's an experience that I shared with her. Um, but it does not experience, obviously, the privileges granted under white supremacy and, and uh, experiences the world as a black woman and a mm-hmm. fat woman. Um, and 
at the time that I read her memoir, I was really thinking about reading disability and queerness into spaces that we don't necessarily recognize it when it isn't explicit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really focused at the time on intentionally situating the systems that harm and exploit under these kind of ideologies and are lethal to disabled people and black people and indigenous people in places where I, as a white settler, uh, could see them taking shape and could point to them and say to others, hey, this is actually impacting all of us, though in very different ways, and we need to do something about this. So that's sort of how her book kind of impacted my thinking at the time. And she shares experiences of being policed and, uh, you know, as a black, fat uh, woman, as a queer woman, um, and just as a woman generally under patriarchy and and her the experience of her body in the world and the way that it is controlled and regulated by her fellow citizens. And when I say citizens, I'm not talking about the kind of um, arbitrary or geopolitical uh, citizen in terms of who we decide belongs within certain borders. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just talking about kind of your fellow, the populace at large and and the people around you that you share space with. One of the things that Roxanne Gay writes in her memoir, and it stood out to me, and you quoted it as well, is the reference to her body being a public space. What does mm-hmm. that mean? Mm-hmm. So I think what, what Roxanne is pointing to here is the ways in which under healthism and under this idea of the body and of health being a personal responsibility, we've all been kind of conditioned to fear anything that strays from that ideal norm. And as a result, we police one another and we make judgments about one another based on what we read onto the body or how we perceive someone. And so... Mm. Although, you know, I think, and I referenced this as well, there's a lot of erasure that takes place with fat and disabled bodies in terms of representation, um, in terms of the way we do or do not interact with people who who live in these bodies, um, and that I myself experience as a queer woman, a lot of uh, femme erasure, which obviously I experience mm-hmm. differently as a, as a cis woman, as someone who's not trans and doesn't experience that kind of violence. Um, but you know, you kind of lose the the experience of um, having your body be personal to you unless it's in the frame of you need to do something about that. Um, mm-hmm. This this body is an unruly body, which is what Roxanne calls um, her body in the book, and you need to do something about it. And I, as a fellow citizen, have the right to you know, pass judgment on you because of, mm-hmm. of these things I've absorbed from society that tells me that it's okay to do that. I want to turn to the first half of your your essay. That it, it opens with the words mad and fat. So I guess I'm trying to explore the connection between bodies that are perceived as different as fat and uh, notions of sanism. So where does the concept of, of madness come into play? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, anytime there is this straying from the norm um, and from the norm being kind of these ideas we've we've um, absorbed about how our bodies should look and behave and how we should uh, behave and, and feel and think, 
um, then we look for reasons to explain why that is. And particularly because of, of things like healthism, we have to have a reason to explain why a person may not be adhering to our social norms. And so so often what we identify as uh, mental illness or of symptoms of mental illness are these kind of strayings from what we consider to be a normal or desirable way to behave or to think. And mm -hmm. um, this is a process that's mirrored both in terms of how we determine whether or not people are sane, um, whether or not people have disability, whether or not their, their failure to kind of um, be thin or healthy is you know, if we think of that as a personal failing, then we have to have a reason to explain why that is. And mm -hmm. often in our society, the way that we do that is by pathologizing people and by locating illness or disability or, or madness um, in that space. Right. Often the connection is made that if you're depressed, you're overweight, for example, right? Um, mm -hmm. Can I ask a little bit about some of the terms that both of us, you and I, have used quite liberally, but we haven't really explained? And the terms would be fat phobia and also thin privilege. What do those terms mean for those of us who haven't heard them before? Yeah, absolutely. I can um, I can do my best to kind of explain my understanding of that. And, and I want to say that I'm doing that as a person who doesn't experience um, fat phobia, um, but I, uh, the way that I think of fat phobia and, and what, what I think it is, is the ways that we've been conditioned to fear fatness and how that authorizes us to um, engage in, in shaming um, and stigmatizing behavior against fat bodies. Um, so they're actually different. Fat phobia has to do with the fear of fatness, um, which in in a way kind of we're regulating others but we're also regulating ourselves from that mm -hmm. place of fear um and then it authorizes us to really enact violence on fat bodies um and this is initially where queer theory um, entered for me because as a queer woman i've experienced uh, queer phobia i've witnessed transphobia against uh, partners and loved ones and I think we often look on the individual level at what is happening. And when we do so, we fail to understand the ways in which um, broader society and our kind of binary and um, colonial worldview in which you can only be one thing or another, um, and one is always idealized uh, over the other, um, actually creates and perpetuates that kind of fear. And that fear mm -hmm. is a form of control. Right? If we step outside of the status quo, we have fear to get us back in line. Um, and, and we do that with ourselves and with each other. Um, and then sort of on the flip side of fat phobia is this idea of thin privilege. Um, and I want to say, you know, not every thin person achieves thinness naturally. And some have achieved it actually as a result of these kind of um, violent or healthist ideas where they have to pursue that above all else. Mm -hmm. But regardless, when people can map the ideal, so if thin is the ideal and I can look at a person and say, oh, that's a thin person, that's a thin body, then you are going to experience a level of privilege from that um, because you're not visibly straying from the norm um, and because you're not going to experience the same level of discrimination or societal stigma in the world because you're, you're not visibly different from what we're all meant to be striving from, 
for. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, a relationship that many people with disabilities can make between bodies that are perceived as disabled versus bodies that are able-bodied. In the few minutes that we've got left, we know that the ideas of healthism, fat phobia, thin privilege, these ideas are ubiquitous. So how do we offer up resistance and create spaces where diverse bodies are accepted? I think there are many ways of doing this. And I think one kind of, um, I can think of one example. I, uh, I'm in a school now uh, doing a master's of public policy, and we did a presentation as part of a case competition. And some of the feedback to members of our group were um, around posture and around fidgeting. And I think these are really great ways to kind of locate how, how we are, like how things like the governance of bodies is mm-hmm. really enacted. This is a really small example, but if those are, you know, not moving your body in a way that's unacceptable and having an idealized posture. These are really ableist ideas. And mm-hmm. I think we need to start to kind of push back against some of those those kinds of feedback or those ideas and those conversations as they come up. I also, I used to attend a lot of burlesque shows in Toronto um, with this, uh, particularly the, the work of this burlesque troupe called Les Femmes Pétales, uh, run by Dainty Smith, who is, is the wolf mother um, of this burlesque group. And this was a space of resistance where fat and disabled bodies and black and brown and indigenous bodies um, were all celebrated and were allowed to take up space and were celebrated for doing so. And so by offering their refusal to comply with white supremacist and ableist and, um, you know, um, transphobic ideals about bodies and what is and is not sexy, Uh, They were really, I think, providing a model for other people about spaces where these different kinds of bodies are desirable. And and I shouldn't say they were. They are. They are actively doing this work. So I think those are a couple of different examples kind of from a more personal or, you know, what we as individuals can do is to kind of go, well, why are we privileging that posture? Or why is the primary feedback here about someone fidgeting rather than what it is that they're talking about or they're you know, sharing of of their experience or knowledge. Um, And then on the other side, we can really go to another space where we're actually desiring and creating space for different bodies to desire also and to show up and take up space in, in the world. Well, this is a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you so much, Megan Hawk, for being on the program today. It was a pleasure speaking to you. It was lovely to speak with you too. Thanks so much. That was Megan Hogg, who contributed to Knots, an undergraduate disability studies journal published at the University of Toronto. Her paper was called Mad and Fat Towards a Queer Politics of Embodied Difference. We'll put a link up on our show blog, which is ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. If you want to go back and listen to my conversation with Megan, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. Such a lot to think about today on the program. I'll just close by saying that I think there's a real need to accept a diversity of experience. Experience and diverse types of bodies in the world, but also to think about the ways in which we police ourselves and monitor the ways in which our bodies comply or deviate from this ascribed norm. With that said, I'd like to thank Megan Hawk for being on the program today. The Pulse's technical producer is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. 
This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.